0: Forty-four. are going to continue on uh, through Luke's gospel, and this is our passage uh, for this morning. So Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 31, uh, this is the word of God. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching. Because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, before we uh, consider this passage this morning, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we have... uh, prayed in song, asking uh, that you will speak. And we recognize, Lord, that you have already spoken, that this is your very word that we have been reading. And so, Father, we ask that this morning that you will uh, take your word, your voice, your message, and by the power of your Spirit, you will enable us to receive it. I pray that you will give us great insight into this passage. Lord, I pray that you will help us through this revelation to understand the nature of the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will be empowered by your Spirit to rejoice in all that Jesus is and all that he has successfully done on our behalf. Lord, we pray this morning for those who are sick, for those who are uh, struggling with health issues of various orders of magnitude. Uh, Father, we just ask that wherever they are, whatever their exact circumstances, whatever the exact uh, details, Lord, I just pray that they will this morning, as we meet to worship you, that they will feel the presence and power of your spirit with them. Uh, I pray that you will help them to find uh, rest and comfort and strength In the finished work of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Our Father, we would ask that this morning you would be so present and powerful in our midst in this room. And also with the children as they gather for their uh, time. Uh, Lord, we just pray that this will be a morning where you are glorified and exalted. And where you do what only you can do. Lord, help us to see you more clearly. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been uh, sort of tracking through the Gospel of Luke uh, up until now, or even if you're just roughly familiar uh, with the gospel stories, uh, one of the things that you should be thinking is that uh, Jesus is really uh, pretty awesome. You get this uh, in a variety of ways. You know, the conception, the prophecies, all lines of Old Testament promises and plans running to Jesus. The celebration of His birth, you know, with the company of the army of heaven, you know, proclaiming the birth of their general in the manger, you know, the announcement of peace on earth and the appearance of Jesus coming to the temple as the Lord coming to the house of His covenant, uh, being recognized by uh, Holy Simeon and Anna. The baptism, the resistance of Satan in the desert, recapitulating the history of Israel, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. I mean, Jesus is pretty great. And one of the very interesting things about his greatness is that his greatness invariably meets with opposition. So when Jesus stands up in the passage that comes right before this one, and he announces in the synagogue that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, he is the messenger of the Lord who the Spirit rests upon. He is the one who has come to announce sight for the blind and freedom for the oppressed and that the chains of the captives and the slaves will be broken. And the people reject him, and in fact, the people want to kill him Because he dares to say that the grace and mercy of the living God is not just for Israel, it is for everyone. And so you see from the very beginning, Luke is setting up the gospel so that you know, as great as Jesus is, the light has come into the darkness, as great as Jesus is, people resist him. People do not want the Messiah to be who he is. They only want the Messiah to be who they want him to be. And if he will not be the Messiah they want, then they will reject him, they will hate him, they will try to kill him. And in the end, of course, we know that they will succeed in putting him to death on the cross. None of which, of course, is outside of God's redemptive plan and purpose. Uh, But we should never fail to be shocked by the animosity and enmity in the human heart that's directed towards God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke is showing you that it is people who resist the Lord and the Messiah, but it is not only sinful people, it is also the hosts of hell. Uh, It is Satan and his demons. We see this in the wilderness temptation that Satan is trying to destroy the ministry of Jesus by getting him not to be the Messiah that he is, but by getting him to be the Messiah, the Son of God, uh, in a way that bypasses suffering and bypasses uh, the cross. Here, Jesus is teaching in the synagogues, and the people are amazed at his authority. That is, there is new teaching. Uh, Jesus does not speak referring to uh, other rabbis or other thinkers. Jesus speaks, and he also, this is one of the things that separates Jesus from everyone else in history. Jesus, when he delivers authoritative messages, does not say, Thus saith the Lord, or this is what the Lord says. Jesus himself just directly says it. Uh, All of the prophets, when they deliver a message from God, they always say, this is what the Lord says. Jesus never does that. Uh, Jesus will just directly speak, and when Jesus speaks, you hear the voice of God. He doesn't need to preface his own words with, this is what God says, any more than the Father needs to preface his own words with, this is what God says. Jesus is God, and when he speaks, the voice of God, the word of God is heard. No one else does that even the holy prophets of the Old Testament. So the people are amazed at the power and authority of the words of Jesus. This power and authority, though, brings Jesus into conflict with the powers of darkness. We know, you know, famously in the book of Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, powers, rulers, forces depending on your translation... Right, this is a whole pile of words that are heaped up there so that you, to so make sure that you know, yes, there is human opposition in the sinful heart to Jesus, but ultimately the real contest is between Jesus and the powers and forces of darkness. We've already met their captain in Satan, and Jesus has succeeded in avoiding temptation, but now in the synagogue where Jesus is preaching and proclaiming a message with authority, you have sort of... A frontal assault with the powers of darkness. So in this synagogue, to disrupt the message of Jesus, there's a man who is possessed with a demon an impure spirit, and he cries out at the top of his voice, Go away! This is a direct challenge to the power of Jesus. Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. Now this introduces something which is very interesting that you see picked up in the book of James and in other places. The demons know exactly who God is. And the demons understand who Jesus is long before anyone else does. in fact, the demons understand who Jesus is before the disciples do, really. But they hate him. They oppose him. One of the things that is absolutely essential for us to understand is that intellectual knowledge is not the same as saving faith. We can know all kinds of things about Jesus. We can know all kinds of things truly about God. We can be able to list his attributes. We can be able to quote scripture. We can even be able to tell people everything they need to know in order to be saved and yet not be saved ourselves. There's a difference between knowledge and acceptance, knowledge and engagement, I think this is one of the things that we need to be very careful of in our churches, particularly where we sort of put a primacy on knowledge and teaching. Knowing things in your head is not sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not enough. In other words, our relationship with God is not less than knowledge, but it is more than knowledge. It is necessary, but not sufficient. The demons know who Jesus Christ is. And there's a power encounter, Jesus and a demon. The demon tells Jesus to go away, and Jesus is going to tell the demon to go away. And I know I just read it, but who do you think wins? Right? Uh, what you have here is you have a display of the power of Jesus, confronted with the demons, confronted with the powers of hell. The demon commands Jesus to leave. Jesus commands the demon to leave. And of course, there's no contest whatsoever. In fact, Jesus does not even dignify the questions with a response. Have you come to destroy us? The answer is obviously yes. But Jesus doesn't bother telling him that. Uh, Jesus says, just be quiet. You know, I'm not going to dignify this with a response. I'm not talking to you. How have you come to destroy us? Just be quiet. Actions will speak louder than words. Get out of here. And the demon goes. Come out of him. The demon throws the man down, but Luke records, the man is not injured at all. Then all the people were told were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. Now notice though, verse 32, they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Then verse 36, all the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are. This is one thing that's absolutely essential to understand. It's easy for us to sort of get distracted with, in our experience, the exotic nature of the exorcism. So it's sort of interesting. Oh, there's a demon here, and Jesus can command it to come out, and and that's very exciting and interesting in terms of narrative. But the point of Jesus having power to command a demon to come out of someone is to underscore the validity and the authority of every word that comes out of his mouth. In other words, the strength of his command to the demon— demonstrates that if his verbal authority is such that he can command a demon and it has to go, then everything that he teaches and says and preaches and proclaims has absolute binding authority as well. In other words, Luke is not showing you here, you know, that there's just, here's a neat thing Jesus did, or here's a really interesting fact about Jesus. He can command demons and they have to leave. That is true, but even more importantly— The fact that Jesus' word is authoritative to command evil spirits demonstrates the authority, underscores or underlines or emphasizes the authority of every word that comes out of his mouth. If he can command demons, you better listen to him. You you better listen when he's teaching you. You better listen when he's speaking in the synagogue. You better listen when he's out on the mount. You better listen to him when he's out by the seashore. Every word that comes out of his mouth is powerful and effective. you need to listen and put it into practice. All the people were amazed at his power and authority. This is very interesting, this sort of combination. His power and authority, although they often overlap, are not identical. The demon obviously has power over this person. But the demon has no authority over them. Jesus has both power and authority. Sometimes we can refer to this sometimes as, um, you know, power is might and authority is right. You know, might and right. Just because you have power doesn't mean you're in the right. You know, if if someone breaks into a home, they may be able to overpower the person living there. But they don't have any right to be there. They don't have any authority in that house. But what you're really hoping for in terms of police force is you're hoping that your police force, ha- which has authority, also has greater power than the criminal element. And that they will be able to apply the necessary force to keep people safe. Because as a recognition, criminals may have power, they might have strength and might, but they don't have any authority. Whereas the police who have authority aren't going to be able to do anything unless they also have power. And so what you want is you want power and authority, might and right, properly combined in its lawful place. And that's what you have with Jesus, preeminently. Absolute authority combined with omnipotence. All authority, all power, might and right, infinitely combined in one person. So Jesus comes along, and he has power and authority, even in the demonic realm. Uh, Verse 38. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, or a great fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. Now, I just parenthetically... Can't help but notice here, at least in Luke's gospel, they is a little bit ambiguous. You know, I I don't know what Peter felt about his mother-in-law being healed here, you know, but uh, suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. The language, the wording of Jesus rebuking the fever is the same language of Jesus rebuking evil spirits. It's almost a semi-technical term for commands in exorcisms. Luke's point is not that the fever is caused by a demon. In fact, one of the things that you get clearly differentiated in the Gospels is organic maladies. And demonic activity. So there are people who suffer physical symptoms because of demonic oppression, and there are other people who suffer physical symptoms because they have disease, and the Gospels very clearly differentiate those two things. So here, this lady just has a great fever, a high fever, and for us, you know, in our day with Tylenol and aspirin and, you know, all the medical care that we have, you know, a fever doesn't sound like that big of a deal. It is worth noting that probably in the history of the world, you don't want to say the majority of people, but an extraordinarily large percentage of people have died in the throes of fever. And the onset of fever is often a symptom of all, can be a symptom of all kinds of underlying problems. And so for her to have a great fever is not just sort of like, well, she's a little bit sort of, incapacitated with the flu but she'll bounce back and instead of just waiting 48 hours Jesus heals her now. It's this could very well be, you know, a, a life threatening illness. She may not be getting better. There may be nothing they can do for. Lots and lots and lots of people around the world today where they do not have proper medical care die in fever. And in the ancient world that was certainly the case as well. So this is not a mild thing. But Jesus bends over her and rebukes the fever as if it's an agent, as if it itself is at war and Jesus needs to conquer it. And there's a sense in which that's exactly what's going on. Jesus is demonstrating that he has come into the world to push back the forces of darkness and also to push back the effects of the curse. Everything that brings pain and suffering and sorrow and agony and ultimately death into the world, he's pushing it back. You know, He is demonstrating that he can drive out the demons. He is demonstrating that he can take care of disease. He can do whatever is necessary to restore life and health and vitality in this world. Because in terms of human beings, there are all kinds of things that bring us down and that war against us. Yes, there are demonic forces. Yes, there are powers of darkness. But disease. Sickness. Weakness. Death. These are also our enemies. And these exist in the world for one reason and one reason alone. It is because of our rebellion against God. And so in the new heavens and new earth, the home of righteousness, you don't get any sorrow or tears or sickness or disease or demonic oppression or death. Why? Because Jesus is taking care of it all. You know, he's destroyed all of those enemies, and this is one of the things that, um, you know, I don't know who wrote, uh, I really don't, I don't know who wrote what uh, Laura said, you know, about the inaugurated kingdom and the already and the not yet and all of that stuff, but that's like, that's like a theological home run, you know, in terms of, in terms of that language. That's exactly, that's exactly what the New Testament is teaching us, that Jesus has inaugurated a kingdom because the king is here, the kingdom is here but it's not fully consummated. That is, there's more in the future. It's already here in one sense, but there's a lot more to come. It's already present, but it's not yet totally here. There's a greater reality to look forward to. or to not look forward to, depending on your point of view. It's up to you. You There's a greater reality coming. And it's already here because Jesus is already here. It's already being pushed back, but there is a time coming when it will absolutely categorically be done forever. And we live in that interim period, the overlap of the ages, where the age to come is already rolled back into history because the Lord of eternity has come already. And we look forward to his second coming, when everything will be made as it ought to be. But one thing that Jesus is showing you here is that you can keep up opposition to him, and he has power and authority. He can take care of all of our problems. And if you're thoughtful, you then begin to ask yourself, well, how can he take care of all of our problems? Because all of our problems, like demonic oppression and Sickness and sorrow and death, those are not the disease, those are the symptoms. That is, it only exists because of sin. So if you're going to get rid of the symptoms, you actually need to root out and destroy the disease. So if you're being thoughtful, what you're really seeing here is that if Jesus can destroy you know, the powers of darkness and sickness and sorrow and death, ultimately, the only way that he can do that is if he has come and can destroy Sin. And that's exactly where the gospel is taking you towards. But it's telling you even now, this is the path that Jesus is on. He's going to get rid of sorrow. He's going to get rid of sickness. He's going to conquer the devil. Don't you worry. Categorically, everything that haunts us, everything that oppresses us, Jesus has power and authority over. And he uses that power and authority for our good and to reveal the heart of the Father. So one demon, one fever. The question then becomes, are these just isolated cases? Well, verse 40 tells you that at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. In other words, the first man in the synagogue and Peter's mother-in-law stand as representatives of bigger classes. Jesus didn't run out of power and need a break after healing them. Uh, he was able to heal everyone of different diseases. He wasn't just sort of a fever specialist. You know, whatever the problems were, he, he was more than enough for it. Verse 41, moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Now, there are three types of cases in the Gospels where Jesus forbids people to tell others about himself. Uh, one is with demons. The gospels make sure that you know when Jesus drove out demons, he told them not to tell people who he was. And Luke says here it's because they knew he was the Messiah. Jesus also tells people who he heals often not to tell other people what he's done. And in the third place, Jesus tells his disciples when Peter finds us, "You are the Christ." Jesus tells him, "Don't tell anyone." what the Father has revealed to you. And the same thing with the Mount of Transfiguration. Don't tell anyone what you have seen. Now, why is that? Why is Jesus, in those three cases, telling people not to tell others who he is? Demons, healing, and the disciples, when they finally begin to understand that he's the Messiah. This is actually, in in scholarly circles, is sometimes referred to as the messianic secret. Why is there a secrecy surrounding Jesus' identity as the Messiah? Well, bypassing a lot of discussion... It seems to me that when people knew that Jesus was the Messiah or were told that Jesus was the Messiah, they interpreted that with, through all of the wrong categories. That is, they assumed if Jesus is the Messiah, then he is immediately going to destroy the Romans and he's going to get rid of all of the enemies of Israel and he's going to set up this earthly kingdom right now and everything's going to be totally fine. So we'll rally around him as our champion and as our king So that he can go and destroy all of our enemies and make our lives sort of a living paradise. That is not the Messiah that Jesus is. He is the Messiah who conquers through his death on the cross. And so no one understood that. No one got that. And so to be told that Jesus is the Messiah immediately plants the wrong connotation in people's minds. In terms of the healing, one of the things that you find is that when Jesus was surrounded by all of these people, he wasn't actually able to do his job. You know, you get all of these people coming out uh, to surround him, to heal everyone. And Jesus says, as he will, you know, in a few verses, I didn't come for this. I came to teach. I came to proclaim the message. And then the text ends by telling us that Jesus kept going along, proclaiming and preaching in all of the towns. That's why he came. In a sense, the exorcisms and the healings are incidental to his ministry. They underscore... His power and authority in verbal teaching and preaching, but it wasn't the point. He didn't come to sort of establish himself as the head of a Palestinian healthcare system. You know, he didn't come to drive out every demon. He came to teach people the way to the Lord. And yes, that involved pushing back all of these enemies, but fundamentally, he came as the Word of God, John 1-1, to proclaim the Word of God. Right? He's the Word preaching The word. And when he's just surrounded by everyone, he can't actually do that. And one of the things that's very interesting is that the people in verse 42 come out and they try to keep him from leaving. I mean, who has authority here? They they try to keep Jesus from leaving them. Now at one level, one level, you can understand that. If Here's this man who teaches with an authority that no one else has. Here's this person who can heal your diseases. Here's this person with demonstrated power over demonic powers. Let's be honest, we wouldn't want him to leave either. They they want him to stay. They want him there. But Jesus did not come simply to make life in one village ideal and worry-free. He came to minister to the world. And so he says, basically, to these people, I can't stay and just take care of all of your problems. It's not why I came. I came to preach the word of God everywhere. And so I need to move on. And he did. And notice that Luke puts the accent, not that Jesus went to all these other towns driving out demons and healing people. He puts the accent on Jesus went to all these other towns proclaiming the message of God and preaching in all of their synagogues. That is the great point. Now what about for us then? Well, this text is not about how we are supposed to drive out demons and heal diseases. Right? It's about Jesus and his ministry. And so they get a little bit worried when sort of the first line of application is to say, well, we need to be out engaging in spiritual warfare in the greater power of the name of Jesus to be driving out demons everywhere. Uh, That does not mean that there is not a place for confrontations with evil. But it's certainly not sort of the, the point drawn out of here. In other words, this is about, as the Gospels always are, this is about who Jesus is, not about what we're supposed to do in our lives. It's always first about Jesus. But I do just want to say one thing about uh, Christian engagement with, demo- with the demonic. I think there are two errors that Christians tend to fall into. One is sort of almost a, refer to sort of a, like a practical atheism. I realize that that's completely the wrong word to use, but you understand sort of the drift of it. A practical atheism when it comes to demons, or a practical a-demonism. You know, just that you say they believe, you say they exist, but you just never really, ever, ever think about it. It's sort of shelved off to the side, where you have this category for these existent beings, but you don't ever actually think they do anything, or or even if they do, you don't think that you've ever experienced anything with that, or or whatever. So it becomes basically this theological fact that you'll say, yes, I believe they exist, but for all intents and purposes, practically speaking, there is nothing about them. Okay, that's that's a that's a pretty big error. But on the other hand, the opposite error is to think that you know demons are absolutely responsible for you know every runny nose that you've ever had and you know for every lustful thought well that's just the demon of lust and you know i I don't know about uh i don't know about your heart i i don't know uh, how much help from demons our hearts need to lust you know like i i don't know how much help from demons our hearts need to lose their temper i don't know that every time i get mad it's because i'm being oppressed by a demon of anger i think a lot of times i get mad it's because i'm a jerk you know, like, I, I just don't know about you, but I just don't know how much help, you know, uh, my sin nature needs to generate a lot of these things, right? So we don't want to offload all the responsibility for our own hearts to the demonic world, but we also don't want to be completely negligent of it, okay? Somewhere, somewhere in the middle. Now, that becomes difficult in different ways, depending on where you live. You know, the Bible tells us that you know, Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The Bible tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And I think that Satan has different strategies in different times of history and in different places around the world. In fact, one of the things that's obvious is if you read the Gospels is that there is a level of demonic activity confronting Jesus at that time of history that you never get before or after. In other words, it's like Satan releases all the stops, sends all the guards forward, because this is the only chance he's going to have to stop Jesus. And so I, I don't think that what you see in the Gospels is typical. I, I think, it, and it's not exaggerated, it's just that in terms of time history, in terms of redemptive sequence, it's all forces to the front. Uh, Satan makes sort of a last-ditch effort to oppose and stop the Son of God you know, in his earthly ministry. So I don't think this is sort of typical throughout all of time. But I do believe, as I I know a number of uh, missionaries, many with with impeccable theological understanding, uh, serving in various parts of the world, that in different parts of the world, Satan and the powers of darkness overtly demonstrate their presence and power to keep people in bondage and fear. And this is listen, i am I am the last person to sort of get swept away with you know sort of some of the all the trendy spiritual warfare kinds of things I'm just not I think a lot of that's just nonsense but there is no, I have no doubt whatsoever uh, that there is all kinds of overt explicit obvious attention drawing manifestations of demons around the world as they oppress and oppose the kingdom of God. I have no doubt about that. And and I also know that in some places, the gospel breaks through through power encounters. That is, through the name of Jesus being brought in full frontal opposition to the powers of the demons. In that sense, it's very much like the book of Acts, okay? So Satan will try to keep people in fear and in bondage and, and terrified, but there is another strategy, which I think is probably more likely um, the case here in our, in our country at this time in history. The greatest thing you could ever possibly do, in my judgment, if you were the devil and you were, and you were not able by sheer power to conquer and oppress everyone, the best thing you could do would be to convince everyone that that whole world didn't even exist, so that instead of being overt, you'd be as covert as possible. You just get people to, to sort of buy into a, you know sort of a naturalistic materialism where where the whole supernatural world is screened off or, or written off, and so then you know as you go about in terms of deception, as you go about in terms of you know all of your activity, you know. People don't even bother to ask if there's anything demonic because they've long ago concluded that mature, reasonable, scientific people can believe in no such thing. And if that's the case, then powers of darkness are able to yeah. tempt and attack and lead and woo people. And they can't possibly be resisted because... Their very existence is denied from the very beginning. And so around the world, we need to be very careful in terms of wisely discerning what are the enemies of Jesus doing. Sometimes it's very, very subtle. Sometimes it's overt and powerful. But nonetheless, Jesus has power and authority in every circumstance, in every place, and he can give you the wisdom to see through every strategy. He can give you the power to drive out any enemy. And he can allow you by his grace to understand the circumstances in which you are. Now, I have to admit this is a little bit personal for me, but the one thing I really wish in this text, I, think I really do when I read this, I don't, um, I don't necessarily, you know, really want very much to do with casting out demons in fact i i suspect i would be quite content if i was never in such a circumstance you know uh largely because of my cowardice you know that's just nothing i want really to be to be very much a part of um but i read this i go jesus came to teach and preach man what was that like Every going to go, Steve, if you had the choice between listening to Jesus teach for ten minutes or seeing him heal people and drive out demons, what would you pick? Oh, it's not even, it's not even close. To, to to see his eyes and and to hear his voice because he, he did have a human voice. There was a tenor to it. There was there was you know he he are, he pronounced words a certain way. He inflected a certain way. He he, he spoke. Like only Jesus did, so that if you really knew Him and and He was in the other room talking, you would be able to pick out His voice. He, he had distinct human mannerisms and gesticulations, and He He was a person. Odd, oh, what would it be like to be taught by Jesus? I would do anything for that, you know. And then, the Lord reminds me, Steve. And and, and the Lord has to be very very gentle and patient with me. The Lord sort of comes and to Stevie, yeah, like I know I know you're not overly bright. <laughs> but even you can understand this. He will teach you. It's right here. Amen. This is the message of Jesus. This is his word. And the Holy Spirit can work in your heart so you can understand the message of Jesus. See, and it's not just 10 minutes. You can listen to his word and his voice for the rest of your life. As much time as you want, come and sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. It's all here. This is the word of Jesus. My goodness. I'll try. (laughs) Uh, That's what I need. (laughs) <laughs> but it's it's the message of Jesus. He's my teacher. And and what a thing to be able to gather together on a Sunday morning and and you know it's it doesn't matter who's preaching or, or you know who's up front. Because the person who's up front is only if it's themselves, they're only gonna get it wrong anyway. But if they're representing Jesus then it's not them. It's Jesus by his spirit teaching you who his father is through his word. It's it's him. He can do it. And so we gather and let's let's gather expectantly. Let's gather with worship in our hearts. Let's gather excited. It's an opportunity not uh, to be bored by the inaccuracies of Steve. It's an opportunity to gather and by the word through the power of the Spirit to hear the voice of Jesus. And go home and do that yourself. Pour over this message from Jesus. Words with power and authority. And don't stop until your response is just like the crowd's. Don't stop until you are amazed. Absolutely amazed at his words. Well, may God help us. Uh, May God help us to hear his voice, to love his word, and by the power of the Spirit be amazed at the teaching and preaching of our powerful and authoritative Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask your musicians to come uh, and lead us in our closing song.